Man, I feel the sweet presence of Jesus here today. Anybody else sense the, just the sweetness of the Lord here? <laughs> uh, just put your hand on your stomach like this and just say rivers of living water in my belly. <laughs> just keep it right there. Just keep your hand right there. Just say it again. Say rivers of living water in my belly. Praise God. One more time, one more time. Say rivers of living water gushing up from my belly. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing. That goes for all of life. Without the realization of his sweet presence, everything is worthless. It's his presence that gives value to anything. Because he's the only thing that actually holds value everlasting. He's the only thing that has full value in the eyes of God. So if anything's going to be worth anything, it's got to be a recognition of Christ. So we're going we're gonna to look at Jesus Today, we're going to go straight to the pinnacle. We're not talking about anything else. We're going to look at the man who is most lovely among men. Him who is fairer than 10,000, than all the sons of men. We're going to look at Jesus today. Because I have a conviction deep in my heart. I believe I've received that from the Bible. That looking unto Jesus authors and finishes faith. And there isn't another route of faith being authored or sustained all the way into the end than looking at Jesus. So we're going to look at him. And what I mean by look at him is we're going to pull our attention and fix our attention upon what he is like, who he has revealed himself to be. And I believe, as Tozer has stated so brilliantly, looking at Christ, a million problems are solved all at once. I find that most of my problems are an area in which my eyes have deviated. A deviated gaze causes all kinds of problems. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, there is no reason why you should look away, but there are a million reasons why you should not look away. And I find that to be true in my life. Anybody else? So let's look unto Jesus today and let him speak to us. In a fresh way. Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5. Song of Solomon chapter 5. I want to pull a text from verse 16. This is the platform from which we're going to jump today. Anybody who's read Song of Solomon knows it's a wonderful love song between a bride and a bridegroom. I don't have to explain it to you guys that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. I'm staying actually in room 329, which was very interesting because Christ the bridegroom is spoken of in John 3, verse 29. It says, it says he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And so to me, that's very uh, significant. The Lord loves to do little 
romantic things like that for us. So he puts me in the, the room number of his bridegroomness. <laughs> so I don't have to explain to you, Jesus Christ has actually called himself the bridegroom. It's, this isn't something that somebody else put upon him. He called himself the bridegroom. And we see John the Baptist called him the bridegroom. We see in the end the church is the bride. And the, come see the wife of the lamb, which makes him the bridegroom. So we see Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and the bride is us. It's not just us as a corporate whole, though that is true. It's us and our individual souls. Because the bride as a whole is made up of individual brides. Because he loves you specifically and personally, not just us collectively. He loves us collectively because he knows and loves each one of us individually. That's, what's, that's what makes the collective so wonderful to him is because he knows each individual. That's why the whole collective steals his heart. because each one of them steals his heart. In, in a specific way. So we don't have to jump into that because I know you guys understand that. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom of your soul, the husband of husbands, a man who loves you thoroughly and lays his life down for his wife. That's who Jesus is. And so we look at that and we know that. And then we look at this text in Song of Solomon where the bride and the bridegroom are singing one to another. And we see in verse 16, the bride says something of the bridegroom. Look at what she says. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. Now, this wholly desirable is what I want to focus on because it means altogether lovely. He is altogether lovely. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew translation of this word, I looked this up because I don't speak Hebrew, so I looked up somebody who speaks Hebrew, had them explain it to me, and it actually means he is made up of loves and delights. He is altogether lovely. He is made up of loves and delights, and he is all that excites desire. He is all that excites desire. Now, if you just take the English language and look up Altogether lovely, the word altogether means wholly or completely, entirely. And then the word lovely means able to excite love. So he excites, he strikes a fountain of love on the inside of you, and then forever you drink from its streams. He is exciting of love. And if you look at it in its and it's, if you compact it together and you want to use two of the same letters to start, you could say he's entirely enticing. So I want to say today that your bridegroom is entirely enticing. He is completely everything that fulfills everything about you. There is not one person that is entirely enticing but him. So we're going to look specifically at that. He is wholly desirable. As Charles Spurgeon so brilliantly said, he said, If I had a tongue of an angel, I could not give proper color to Christ. To look at him and see him as he is, it is impossible to describe this altogether lovely one. As a matter of fact, all the words that a man can say are but dark shadows to this resplendent, glorious person. But today we shall make an attempt to look unto Jesus and see what he is like. Zechariah tells us that his face is radiant like the sunlight, that light rays come forth from his hands, that he has a glittering spear, and that he shoots arrows of light to slay his enemies. You say, Eric, I haven't read that before. Well, you need to pick up the book of Zechariah and let Zechariah tell you about this vision he has 
of this great God. Think about this for a second. His face is like the sunlight. Out of his hands comes forth rays of light. He has a glittering spear and arrows of light with which he slays his enemies. That is Christ, your bridegroom. God Almighty, precious God. So we see this, this wonderful, glorious light being. And I say to you today, what is his voice if his glance is lightning? His voice are words steeped in honey. His, what does it say there? His mouth is full of sweetness. When he speaks to you, it, it, is, a, it is a taste that opens blind eyes. When you hear Christ's voice, you taste something that opens your eyes and you can see. Praise God. This is how beautiful Jesus actually is. His voice is steeped in honey. Think about this. His voice is so incredible that if you receive the words that come out of his life, you live forever. That's crazy. His words impart eternal life. This is how beautiful he is. This is how entirely enticing he is. This is why he's altogether lovely. To hear his voice and receive his words means you receive eternal life, praise God. Men have died searching for the fountain of youth in order to extend their lives just a little bit. And all the while they pass by the one whose words give life eternal. To me, I look at this and I, I say, why can't men, why can't we as humans see him as he in fact is? What is it? As a matter of fact, God told the prophet that Jesus is like a root out of dry ground. In other words, to the world, he has no value whatsoever because they're veiled. They can't see him. But in the gospel, they, they begin to see these glimmers of what he's like. The, the door to his chamber gets pushed open just a centimeter, and the light rays come out, and they begin to see. And they say, dear God in heaven, there is a man who is altogether lovely. I've seen him in the gospel. And so we preach this gospel. We live by this gospel because it is the pushing open of the door of his chamber that we might see what he's really like. You see, they treat him as a criminal, as one early writer said. They treat Christ as a criminal, but what has he ever stole from men except their sins? Christ. His mouth is full of sweetness, which means there is nothing in his mouth that's not sweet. <laughs> Even his rebukes are so wonderful. Have you ever had Jesus rebuke you, but it's so sweet, it melts you down to nothing? Praise God, he's so tender. His mouth is full of sweetness. Rutherford said it like this, even his crosses are sugar-coated with himself. His mouth is full of sweetness. This means his words, this means his breath, this means his kiss is full of sweetness. I say to you that when we look at what his mouth is that imparts sweetness to the soul, as the psalmist even spoke of it when he, he speaks of a sweetness stored up for those who fear him. That sweetness that God has stored up for those who fear him is the lips of Christ, the voice of Christ, the tenderness of his face, his glance, his touch, his being, his sweetness to the soul. He is desire fulfilled, the tree of life himself. This is who Jesus actually is. And so as Thomas Watson wrote, he said, his, 
kiss is so sweet that it makes even death sweet to a believer. Because when you recognize Christ as bridegroom and you know his kisses and his caresses and the sweetness of his fellowship and his voice, death is your marriage day. You don't fear death because that's the greatest day of your life. You shall see him who your heart has only seen. Praise God. So his words are a taste that make the blind see. You see, many areas in my life have been blinded and I didn't understand something, I couldn't see something, but one touch of his voice in that area was a taste that opened my eyes and now I see. And so I say to you, maybe there's something that you're blinded in in your life. There's something, an area that you just can't see correctly. Taste and see. (laughs) Taste his words. Let his word come into you. And as you hear his living voice, that taste will open up those blind eyes and you shall see. You will see clearly. Praise God. Not only this, but his words are come forth from his breath. And his breath gives life to the soul. Jesus says, my words are spirit and life. Somebody said, what's more important, Eric, worship or the word? And I'll answer you the way Charles Spurgeon answered that question. He said, you tell me what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? (laughs) One of my favorite writers said, his kiss can cure your evil and bring you to his bliss and give you him for whom you sigh. Jesus, my sweetness. I wonder if God will open our eyes fresh today to see Jesus the way he really is. That's what we need. This description of him who is altogether lovely should literally ravish the soul. May God open our eyes. Just put your hand on your chest. Say this with me. Say, Holy Spirit, disclose Christ to me in a way that I haven't yet seen. In Jesus' name. Man, I'm praying that you will see him in such a way you'll be unwilling to look away from him. Other things will come and you'll be like, no, I've got something so much better to look at. Praise God. To see him even on the cross bleeding, love drops of love blood for you. I wrote this poem down. I I love to write poetry. I wrote this down. Blood dripping from the tree is for man a symphony in the eyes of God that men can see stunning love. How can it be? He is altogether lovely. That's where you see his beauty most explicit on that tree when he bleeds for you. A paradise he is. To say that he's altogether lovely is to recognize that he is all virtues, all goodness, All perfection in one. Isaiah 42.1 says that Christ is all of God's delight. He delights God's big heart. I'm telling you, if he can delight God's heart, you better believe he's enough to delight the little hearts of men. (laughs) Praise God. Paul is so convinced of this altogether loveliness of this man, Christ Jesus. He goes, I desire to know nothing. I determine to know nothing among men except this altogether lovely bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and the display of that love in him being crucified. That's the sum of all wisdom right there. Higher than this you cannot climb, deeper than this you cannot plunge. Jesus Christ crucified, praise God. And and I wonder if sometimes we want to move past this and move on to something more spiritual. There isn't anything more spiritual than God becoming a human being, showing and speaking to you himself, and then dying in your place 
If you find something higher than that, let me know. Because you won't find anything higher than that. See, the sun in the sky, it rises and falls on our skin, but the sun of righteousness shines within. And you see all day is a beautiful day. Every day is springtime with Christ. No matter what happens in your life, it doesn't matter because you have a sun that doesn't set on the inside. Praise God. John tells us, as a matter of fact, he's quoting Jesus. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that your joy may be full. In other words, when he speaks to you, he imparts joy. Some people are depressed because they haven't heard his voice in a long time. I'll tell you what crushes depression, the voice of the beloved bridegroom. Just hear him. Let the sweetness of those words steeped in honey touch your soul, and you will find joy bursting up on the inside that has nothing to do with the change of any circumstances or situations whatsoever. That's the kind of person he is, praise God. Hallelujah. Man, I feel this in my heart. I don't want to speak of anything else anymore. I, I, I don't have any other desires than to look at this man, Christ Jesus, and be, as C.S. Lewis said, re-enchanted again and again and again, re-enchanted again and again and again. To have that, that childlike excitement because in the scriptures and in quietness before him, he thrilled my soul again with himself. Praise God. So his voice makes our joy full. This shows us something, that knowing Jesus is the cream of life. Knowing Jesus, experiencing Jesus, is a, it's a heaven below. This great gospel is a field, and the treasure that's in it is this man, Christ Jesus. This man who is altogether lovely. Revelation 21, 23 gives us this incredible picture of the world to come. And in it, it says that the lamb, the altogether lovely one, this Christ bridegroom, the lamb is the lamp. The lamb is is the lamp, the means by which you see in the world to come is the radiant, resplendent glory of his person. Not only will you see him, but by him you will see, which shows me he is the centerpiece of the world to come. He is the heaven of the heaven. You take Christ out and there's no light in heaven. <laughs> he is the lamb lamp. And I say to you, it's important that we learn to live that way here. See, if you get Christ, you get all. You miss Christ, you miss all. It doesn't matter if your theology is as, is as straight as a barrel. You know, some people will say, I know this Christ. You know, I've, I've learned of him. I've, I've, I've read of him. But listen to me. If you haven't felt his love fire burn on the inside of you, if you haven't felt that heat, then you're just like the moon. All light and no heat. You got all kinds of light, and I understand all this stuff. I've learned all this stuff. But if your knowledge isn't felt on the inside, as one of my friends likes to say, Dane Ortland wrote an, an incredible book called, uh, called Gentle and Lowly. He likes to say, The felt love of God. Because sometimes we like to take the love of God and just make it theological instead of actual. We say, yes, God loves me. No, 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 I'm talking about not the theological fact that God loves me, but the felt love of God. Praise God. There's some things can only be taken out of your soul by a felt hug from the Lord that comes through the scriptures and being with him. So to miss him is to miss all. You can be the richest person, the wisest person, the greatest person, the most successful, you could be the most, quote, spiritually seen person, but without Christ, you still live in an inescapable darkness. 
Without him as the center, it's just not worth anything because the scripture tells us that the gospel is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of this man, Christ Jesus. I wonder if that face is the face of your life, the facing of your life. Is his face the way that you face in your life? You know, there's a story, I think I've told this before here, but it, it just fits perfect. It's a story of a little boy, and the little boy is trying to get away from his shadow, and all his twisting and turning, and he's trying to get, he cannot get away from his shadow, and his father sees what's going on, he grabs him by the shoulders, and he turns him to face the sun, and in that moment, the boy realizes the shadow is gone. And in that little illustration, you can see most people are trying to get away from the shadows of their, their sins, their their depression, their doubt, their fear. They're just sweating, turning, twisting, trying to get away from something that, they, that is attached to them. But if they would just turn and face that radiant face, he will cast behind them the shadow of their doubts, fears, unbelief, and sin. I wonder if we will believe afresh today that the biggest issue in our lives is whether or not we're looking unto Jesus and being captivated by who he is. I ask you, who, who is it that you love in your life? Who is it that you love? Well, whoever it is that you love, their face isn't shining with shadowless radiance. Only Christ's face shines like that. I, there's all kinds of people that God has given to us to love, but every one of them are far inferior to him. I ask you this, what do you want in your life? No matter its carrot, it's still a diamondless ring. Christ is the diamond of life. Praise God. What is it that has your attention? I'll tell you this. Whatever it is that has your attention, it's not as good as the smokeless flame who is Christ himself, who burns in that bush without, a, without, a, without any smoke. I ask you this. Is there any other reason why there are endless songs going unto him than the fact that he is altogether lovely? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Praise God. So we look to him, and in him, seeing him, we desire him. He steals the heart by, when you look at him. You just give him attention, and you're, I guarantee you, you will not be able to hold your heart in your chest. You'll offer it to him freely. St. Augustine said, Christ has come down and stolen my heart and ran away to heaven with it. So if we lack desire, that paramount desire, that spirit craving, that soul pining for Christ, it's because of one thing. Our vision of him has grown, grown dim. The vision of Christ, when it starts to get dim, you see it in the way that you, you desire him. Your desire for the person of Christ will show you how much, of, how much attention he has of yours. Does that make sense? However much attention you give to him, will be the exact proportion of your desire for him. Are you following me? This is why the devil comes with all kinds of things. Because if he can block you from seeing the glories and excellencies of Jesus Christ, then he can get you to go wayward in your heart. But if, that's why the scripture tells us that the devil's main goal in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he, he comes to blind you from seeing the glories of Jesus. Because if you see them, he knows he's lost you. He is the desire of the nations. And to see him is to love him. 
So those who hate him, those who do not love him, those who do not have desire for him, I'm telling you it's because of one thing. They are ignorant of his beauty. The reason why some people are not longing to be with him, longing to experience his presence, longing to hear his voice, I'm telling you it all goes back to an ignorance of who he is. Just like a blind man does not admire colors in a rainbow. He can't see them. You can open up a treasure chest full of riches in front of him, and he still is not going to gasp because he can't see it. And so it is with the treasure chest of Christ. He's open before the eyes of men, but they have no desire. They yawn because they can't see it. And just like a man doesn't weep at music because he's deaf, so it is with the music of his voice. If our ears be deaf to him, no wonder there's no love songs rising up on the inside to him from our hearts. So I say, awaken eyes, awaken ears, see and hear Christ, heaven's most dear. I wonder if we will see it today, uh, Christ again. So as I said, um, many people have knowledge of Christ and it's like the light of the moon with no heat. But it's that felt experience of Christ that comes most cleanly and most purely and most fully when no one else is around. Praise God for the public gatherings. There's a touch there that just doesn't happen anywhere else because it's a gathering touch. And we need these. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us, don't forsake those kinds of touches from the Lord that come through other people and the gathering of people. But the one that will sustain your soul all the way to the death is the quiet one when no one else can see you. D.O. Moody said, character is who you are in the dark, and I would say your spirituality is who you are in the dark, when, when no one can see you. All the joys of this world are literally, literally miseries compared to Christ. He is so lovely to God, and he is so lovely for men, that to refuse to look at him is to die in your sins. Are you hearing this? This is how beautiful... He is to God. He would show him to humanity, and whoever refuses to look to him will be unforgiven. Whoever refuses to let into their hearts the radiant divine beauty of Jesus Christ that God has offered for all to see will be cast away from him forever. That's how beautiful he is. You say, Eric, what do the two have to do with each other? He's so precious to God. If you reject him, God says, you reject me. He's so precious to God. How you treat Jesus, that's how you treat me. He's so precious to God that if Jesus has zero value in your life, God feels you do not value him. To me, I think that's just incredible. But what thrills the soul so much is when she can say, he, this altogether lovely one, is mine. And I can experience him. What does it mean? He is mine. It means he is given himself to me so that I can experience him. I can hear him. I can be around him. I can walk with him. I can be guided by him. I can taste him, drink him, eat him, feel him. He is alive in my life. That's what it means when she says, he is mine. But she's only brought to that place because she first said, I am his. With one hand, you receive Christ only because the other hand gave yourself up to Christ. So you say, oh, Lord, here's me, and then here you receive him. You say, Lord, here's me, and he goes, okay, well, here's me. (laughs) 
or, you should, or we should actually say it like this. He says, here's me, and those who receive it say, here's me. <laughs> so the words of Thomas Watson ring true to me. Clear all your interests and put them in Jesus. Turn away from or renounce your own beauty, your own abilities, and your other things. And give yourself wholly over to him whose character is a full and fixed constellation of God's lights and beauties and splendors, Christ. So I wonder if today in seeing Christ, we will refuse to trust in lesser things. We would, we would refuse to put confidence in lesser things than Christ. Maybe that's what's been happening in your life. Maybe you've been putting confidence in, in a person, in a circumstance, in a situation. Maybe you put your confidence in your own disciplines. Maybe you put your confidence in, you know, how you don't do certain things and, and now you, you know, or you do other new things. Whatever you put your confidence in, it will all fail you. Only Christ will keep you. I remember reading one time, one man said it like this, just to, 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 to throw an uh, arrow at the religious demon. <laughs> he said, some men rest more upon their knees than their Christ. In other words, they're putting confidence in their praying instead of Christ. What does that mean? It means when you really pray, you forget prayer and you see God. And it becomes about Jesus and not how much you've prayed. So we fix our heart's eyes on his sparkling beauties. And he draws us to himself. I, I, I guarantee you, the more attention you give to the beauty of Christ, the more love will be drawn out of your heart towards him. The less attention, the less attention you give to the beauty of Christ, the less love will be able to be drawn from your heart to him. If you're here in this room and you feel numb towards the Lord, look at Jesus. If you're here in this room and you feel like your love is growing dim and your, your desire for him is growing dim, look freshly at who and what he is. And I guarantee you, he will, he will steal your heart. So the three th conclusions that I want to bring you to by exalting Christ today is number one, to abandon everything else but him. And number two, to be drawn to communion with him. And number three, to tell others how beautiful he actually is. That's the goal. And so uh, this this affection drawn from your insides, from your heart, comes from looking at him who has given you all his affections. In Matthew 10, 37, you don't have to turn there, but you've all heard this verse before. Some people look at this and they say, this is a really, really harsh saying when Jesus says, anyone who loves father or mother, wife or children more than me is not worthy of me. Some people say, whoa, that's really hard. But when you look at it, what he's saying is take away the crown from every creature. Take away the crown from, from every other pursuit of this world and give it to him who is altogether lovely. Let Jesus wear the crown he bought with his own blood. Here's the reason why so many people keep on falling down in their lives. They're trying to wear a crown made for a god. Here's the reason why some people can't get up off the ground of depression, because they're still trying to wear a crown too heavy for their heads. Put the crown on the, the one who purchased it with his own blood, and you'll find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. When Jesus is king, things go right on the inside. Praise God. So we see this here. 
The things of the world, no matter how much you love them, they're only shining dust. The things of this world and other people are just literally fading shadows. And all the pleasures you can experience in this world are just popping bubbles next to Jesus. Who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He isn't just bliss in the past or bliss in the present. He is bliss you can count on forever. He isn't just a happiness then. He is a happiness now and forevermore. He does not change. He isn't all satisfying to the soul in one season and then not so satisfying in the next season. He never changes. If there's a change, we know who it is. He cannot change. He is always and in every view, no matter how, what angle you take, he is altogether lovely. It is him that deserves all the attention. And we will be like with Matthew Henry said, we will move into a place where we enjoy God in all, and even in loss, we can enjoy God as all. Now listen to that one more time because it's kind of twisting, but it's very powerful. We'll be those kind of people who can enjoy God in all, and even in loss, enjoy God as all. In other words, you're unaffected. You live in his sweet presence, and you can be with the martyrs who, even in the crackle of the flame, they sung of his infinite charms. Praise God. What kind of a Christ is this? Who even in the midst of being seven feet beneath the earth in solitary confinement, Richard Warmbrand says, I knew his caresses and his kisses. It's the most beautiful time of my life. What is that? That's the kind of Christianity that makes, it makes me salivate. That's what is real. A Christianity that's not determined by what goes on in my life. A Christianity of a Christ who lifts the soul above the earth to fly in the heights with himself. Praise God. Oh, I love this. I'm almost finished. So we can know love pains that are greater than the pains of death. An internal craving and love sickness that just is so much more powerful than the fear of death. I remember Heidi Baker heard of these um, missionaries that went to a really harsh part of the earth, and they could die there. And her response was really funny. When she heard of the danger they were in, she goes, oh, they're in love. And I thought, that is so funny. That's how she sees it. A person who wants to go preach the gospel in a place where they can die, she says, oh, they're in love. <laughs> love makes you crazy, doesn't it? To be lovesick is actually defined as to be so in love you're unable to act normally. And that's the kind of thing that looking at Jesus does. He strikes you with a sickness of love with his kisses. And then you start passing it on to other people. And there's this infection of affection that takes over. And you go into things that are, other people would say, I would never do that. And you don't even, you just skip in there without fear. Because you're sick with love. <laughs> Praise God. So this entirely enticing one, in view of the entirely enticing one, I want to say that if we prize Christ, nothing in the world can be bitter to us. If we prize Christ, there isn't anything that can happen to you that can take away his sweetness. Say, I don't know if that's true. You need a higher vision of Jesus then. Eric, I just don't think that's, that's not been my experience. Well, bring your life to the word instead of the word to your life. Does that make sense? So, the first, the first thing that I was 
saying all these things for is that you would abandon everything else. All other eclipsing pursuits. May you say with Hosea, what do these things have to do with me anymore? May you have such a view of Jesus that those things that used to entice you and pull you away, you'll say things like this. That, I, what does that even have to do with me anymore? Because I have Christ. I have him. What can anything else do for my soul? The oceans of the world aren't worth a thimble of Jesus. And that's what we start seeing. That's the value system that happens to you when you see Christ rightly. So I encourage you to look unto Jesus and abandon everything else. That's the first thing. Because to entertain sin is to invite sorrow. You entertain other things and you literally are calling for sorrow to come into your life. It, like an entire forest can be annihilated by a spark. Something as small as a spark if it's tended to. You can have one thought can drop into the forest of your life and if you tend to it, before long you won't even have a forest of a life left. And so it's just so much more important not to entertain sin but be entertained with God. Matthew Henry said that the Christian should entertain himself day to day with adoration or the beauty of Christ, adoring Christ. So I'm almost finished. Is this okay? I hate to keep hitting you over the head with the same stick, but it is this <laughs> glorious Christ who is glorious. So sin raises a tempest of sorrows in the souls. I reach to you with my first point of abandoning, abandoning everything else in view of Christ. And I say to you, give up poisons for living water. Give up mold for the bread of life. Spit on the table of devils to eat at the table that descends out of heaven. That's what I call you guys to do. Clear all the rooms of your life for Christ because no better guest can come. That's the first point. The second point is this. Communion with him. Let, let your sight of Christ Draw your heart to desire to be with him who is actually and always altogether lovely in his speech, in the sweetness of his presence, in his holding you with his left hand on your head and his right hand embracing you. Be drawn to communion with him. Let this be your highest desire. Find in him a world of pleasures. I believe a lot of people are bound to pleasures because they don't know the highest pleasure. There's an old Russian proverb that goes, God does not mean to deny you pleasures. He wants to give you the greatest pleasure. So Christ is that greatest pleasure. And so may his word and his, may his, word and his voice, the sweetness of his presence, may you desire much to be in his presence or desire to be in his presence much. And you can say with... with um, Robert Murray McShane, he says, an hour with God is worth a lifetime with any man. You can say with David Brainerd, an hour with God infinitely excels all the lower pleasures and delights of this lower world. All, all the pleasures and delights of this lower world. Far exceeds them. You can say with Charles Spurgeon, it is worthwhile to have lived, if for nothing else, than to have had an hour's fellowship with the well-beloved. Wow, what a statement. It is worthwhile to have lived your life to just have had an hour's fellowship with God. I wonder if we can get that kind of value because we see Jesus that way. As um, Samuel Rutherford said, he says, lighten your heart by laying on him. 
Robert Murray McShane said, if you need more rest, then lean more. <laughs> Praise God. If you learn to lay your head upon his chest, John's seat is always open for you at the table. Praise God. So we miss a thousand joys by neglecting communion with God. We miss a thousand joys by neglecting communion with God. So I reach to you to see the altogether lovely one beckoning you to spend time with him, with whatever you've got. And then lastly, that we would tell others of this marrow and fatness. We would tell others of the riches of what Christ really is. Entice other people by your Cinderella love dance to come and be with Jesus. The song in your heart, in, the, in your workplace, you'll be like Cinderella up in there. <laughs> Washing the floors or folding paper, whatever you do. And you'll be saying, hmm, hmm, hmm. So this is love. So this is what makes life divine. I'm all aglow. The key to all heaven is mine, she says. The key to all heaven is mine. Praise God. God's richest jewel that tastes, that opens blind eyes. May we learn from John the Baptist who looked at the lamb and called everyone else to do the same. It says he beheld, he saw, and then he said, look at Jesus and how beautiful he is. Let his altogether loveliness have so much of your attention. The only thing that you can say is what you've seen. Call them all. Call everybody to come look at Jesus. Clear the stage. Make every mountain low and every valley high. May you lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, so the King of glory can come in and set upon the throne of your heart without competition. He can set upon the throne of your heart without being challenged in any way. He can set up his kingdom on the inside, even as God says, I have set up my, holy, uh, my king upon my holy hill. May your heart be that holy hill in which Jesus has surrendered. So these four things really are what we want to look at when we look at the loveliness of Christ. Number one, what he is. Number two, what he's like. And number three, what he's done. And number four, what he is in us. So let's think about this for a second. When you talk about what he is, he is God Almighty. This, the scriptures tell us that he sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. The scripture says to us that all things are his servants. The scriptures tell us that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. The scriptures tell us that at his rebuke, the sea is dry. The scripture says that when he speaks, all the bark of the forest is taken off. You, you think about these things that are said about God. Remember who we're talking about. The one who says in, in, um, Zechariah, in, Zechariah, in Zechariah, he says, I will remove all men from the face of the earth. And in the, the tense that he says it is, in a second, I will take all the people from the planet. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. And people say you shouldn't fear God with a tremble. No, no, I think there's a level of recognizing he can annihilate you with a breath, and you should have a little bit of fear. Even though he's on your side, listen, even, I mean, even if he's your dad, and you sit up in his lap, to, you can feel the power trembling on his leg. You should feel a little bit of something. Do you know what I'm saying? There should be a fear of God, as the scripture says in Exodus 20, 20, the fear of God keeps men from sin. Yeah. 
In other words, there should be a rattle in your bones thinking of the fact that Abaddon serves him, that the, the ground will be opened up, and that even the powers of darkness, in a sense, play into his plan. He's, he doesn't have an enemy here, if you will. It's, it's all working in the way that he has designed it to be. The book's been written. It, the deal is sealed. It's going to end this way. It's not a, it's, there's nothing up in the air. It's already decided. The kingdoms of our God will become the kingdoms of our Christ. Period. <laughs> Remembering that he is God. That's number one. But then from there, what he's like he has revealed to us that he is gracious and compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's rich in love and he walks with you and he's patient with you. How many of you feel like the patience God has shown you is embarrassing? <laughs> I, I am embarrassed at the patience God has had with me. When the records are... Actually, there is no record because he keeps no record. But if there was a record and it was shown... Everybody would be like, Eric was the worst of all of them. <laughs> God just kept restoring this guy for no reason. <laughs> he's gracious and he's compassionate. Not only, can he rip, not only can he rip the earth in half with the breath of his mouth, but from there he's tender towards you. One of my friends, Dane Ortland, likes to say this. He says, the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug tightest. He has this way about him that he, he's attracted to your weakness. By virtue of the fact that he is a savior, your weaknesses pull him to you. Because that's what he does. He saves those that are weak and lowly. He gives prey to the lame. In other words, he's, he's, he's looking for the poor, the lowly, the destitute. And he comes in like a shining armor and he grabs them and he lifts them up. The only ones he doesn't save are those who think they can save themselves. And Jesus says, you think you see, that's why you're blind. But when you say that you can't see, now I come and I'll give you sight. Praise God. So this is the way that he is. And then thirdly, what he has done. You look upon that cross and you see the greatest exemplifying of the greatest love there will ever be. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians says, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Ephesians tells us, he gave himself up as a sin offering. This is incredible. This is what he's like and what he has done. And then lastly, his presence with you. He has not stopped there. He sent the Holy Ghost to be inside of you so that you will never be apart from him and he can be for you all that is needed at any time and any place. Are you following me? Can I, it's 11.30. Can I go five more minutes and we'll be done? Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> I just, I, talking about Jesus is like there's nothing, there's nothing like it. It helps me think upon Christ by preaching Christ. It reproduces that he who waters himself will be watered. I'm watered right now because of the watering. You know, the, the funny thing about Jesus is he's so altogether lovely that he's unlike any other beautiful thing. Because beautiful things in this world, as you get closer to them, you begin to see their flaws. Or as time goes on, you start seeing their flaws. It may be absolutely beautiful from here, but when you get closer, then you start seeing the flaws. 
It may be amazing in the moment, but give it a couple years, and then you start seeing flaws. Are you following me? That's how the beauty is of this world. But Jesus is not like this. The closer you get to him, the more beautiful you see him to be. And the more time goes on, the sweeter he becomes to your soul. There isn't anything like Jesus. You see, there is all kinds of benefits we get from different things. Like, for instance, bread feeds you, water quenches your thirst, raiment, clothes, they clothe your body, medicine will help you with sickness. And each one of these things has a value in and of themselves, but none of their values cross into each other. In other words, you can't, you can't drink, and drink water and be clothed. Water doesn't clothe you, and nor can you drink clothes. Their qualities and benefits don't cross into each other. Jesus is not like this. He is bread to the hungry. He is drink to the thirsty. He is medicine for those who are sick. And he is always clothing for those who are naked with shame. Jesus is altogether lovely. And in every way, he is this way. So we, we look at him as deity in a body. He is God in a body. That's what separates him from everything else. We may love the person that is in our life because they have a good quality, but that's just one star. Jesus is a constellation of stars. Praise God. So we think upon Christ who is altogether lovely and his unrivaled charms. When we say Christ, we mean the anointed one. You know the word Christ means anointed one? And you know in the Old Testament, three people were anointed, three kinds of people. A prophet was anointed, a priest was anointed, and a king was anointed. And they got oil smeared on their heads and they were separated for a specific service. All of them were types and shadows of the one who would come and be the Christ, the oiled one, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And that right there, looking at Christ, is how you can see his altogether loveliness because no matter what outfit he wears, it smells of himself. No matter what office he has, they're all fragrant with his person. So you look at a prophet, the prophet Christ, who comes with these beautiful words like, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, The prophet comes and he speaks and he says, do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you drink or what you will wear. He comes and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's giving us the words of eternal life. This is the prophet of God who says these things to us to explain to us the situation of life. And God himself, he stands in front of you and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There are no more beautiful words than these. He is the highest prophet there will ever be. But also, he is that priest, that priest who actually takes on your sin and represents you before God. You see, you stand before God as Christ because Christ stood before God as you. That's priesthood. Oh, we have a great need for Christ, but we have a great Christ for our need, and he ever liveth to make it intercession for your soul. I remember Dave Papavisi told me one time, he was praying in his room, and he was just under so much pressure, and he's just walking back and forth, and he's like, God! He goes, Jesus! He had no words, Jesus! Jesus! And right when he said Jesus, he slipped into a vision and he saw Jesus in a room saying, Dave, God, Dave. God, Christ was saying his name. He saw the great intercessor praying for him. And I tell you this, Christ wears your name like a stone on his breastplate to bring before God every single day. He stands before God on your behalf. That's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Forever he stands in the place for you. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? 
Because that means he's always making intercession for you. In other words, as long as you come to him, you'll be washed. In other words, he doesn't give up on you. He's always on your side. He's the advocate. He's your lawyer that you don't even have to pay. He does it for free. (laughs) Praise God. And as one of my favorite writers said, every wound on his body was a mouth open to plead on your behalf. Praise God. And then lastly, he is that king. He, yes, he is a shepherd for your provisions, but he's also a sheep for your pardon. And then he's the king who reigns forevermore. Man, praise God. Jacob loved Rachel, didn't he? And he waited a long time for her, but Christ has waited for you much longer. Jacob, he worked hard and labored for Rachel, but that's just a type and shadow of one who has labored all the way to death and waits for you on a day-to-day basis. That's him. He calls you friend, but I'm telling you, he's a better friend than any friend you have. You want to know why? Because which one of your friends part with their blood for you? There is no friend like Jesus. Prophet, priest, king, friend, bread, water, medicine, healing, light, shining one, glorious, divine he is. To see him right, you would need no arguments to persuade you to love him with all of your heart. To see him rightly, you would need no arguments to persuade you to delight in communion with him and to live zealous for him. If there was just a little bit of the door pushed open, literally, like I said earlier, a centimeter of his chamber opened up for you to see him, you would see him and you would be stricken into one desire forever to see him as he really is. I tell you, you say, Eric, I just don't know if it's this way. Let me just say it like this. On that great day, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, it will be because Jesus Christ is in front of them. Okay, it doesn't matter who they are, how cool they are, how much money they are. Listen, it's like, a, it's like a game of chess. The queen is a lot more important than the pawn, right? But when the game is over, all the pieces go into the same bag. It doesn't matter if you're a queen or because you're all in the same bag. At the end, the, the board is cleared, and only Christ stands high. Praise God. All the saints will bow before him. Jesus. So words fail me to speak of this Christ who is Emmanuel, God with us, to behold his beauty and inquire in his temple. That's it. So I'm going to end with this statement from John Owen. If you don't enjoy looking at him now, you will not enjoy seeing him when he comes. If Christ is not heaven to you now, he will not be hereafter. So this is where I'm closing, right here. I have talked about this lovely Christ, this perfect Christ. And if you're here today and your life has been a religious life, you just do the things you're supposed to do and maybe even you read your Bible and you stay away from sin. Listen, that's not what Jesus came to die for. Jesus came to win your heart, to have all your love, to be your first priority to be the thing that you enjoy most? Yes, to wash your sins away, but that's just to get the cork out so you can drink the wine. The sins are just the cork. Removed. Get that out so we can drink. And you can receive that intoxication of heaven. So maybe you're here and you've, you haven't abandoned all for him. Maybe you're here and communion with him is not number one to you. Maybe you're here and you've been mute 
you don't even want to speak of Christ because you're not even convinced about him yourself. I want to encourage you that it's okay because today Jesus wants to show himself to you fresh. And things can start today. And you can see him today. And you can just turn your heart's affection to him today. And he will steal away your heart. And he will run away to heaven with it. You say, Eric, what do I got to do? It's very simple. You think about this gospel. And you bow your knee to him. You think about this great gospel, which is Christ. The perfect Christ. Prophet, priest, king. On your behalf. And you say, Lord, I give myself to what you've shown me of yourself. That's all you got to do. I give up my, the reins of my life so that you can reign. I give up being the Lord of my own life, and I give that to you because I recognize you are altogether lovely. Maybe you've just, been, it's, you've just been numb towards the Lord. I pray that even today, from hearing the word, your life will be alive again. The scripture says in um, Haggai that the messenger came and he spoke the word. And when he spoke the word, he said, the Lord is in your midst. And then the spirit of God came upon Zerubbabel to rebuild the house. I pray that's what happens today. As the word of God has come forth into your ears, the spirit of God will come upon you and you will rebuild that thing that's been destroyed. You rebuild it by the power of the spirit and the grace that comes from his life. Praise God. Let's just do this. Everybody stand up to your feet. Put your hand on your heart. What, what, what matters most is your heart. You know? It's just the center. Just put your hand, yeah, just put your hand right there. Put a little bit of pressure on your chest and your heart right there. Like, Lord, I'm touching my heart because that's what I want to speak to you from. Well, let's all just do this together. Just say this with me. Say, Jesus, you are altogether lovely. Open my eyes. I bow my knee gladly to you. And I ask you, help me abandon everything else to give you that right place. And I ask you, for those enticing kisses, to pull me alone with you, to enjoy you. That's my highest pleasure. And lastly, strike a fountain open that I may always drink from its streams and become that for others. In your precious name, amen. Praise God.